Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Are you ready for some football? Well, Walters is, and Walters has all of the games for you all weekend long. Reservations are limited and can be found on all Walters social media channels. Walk-ins will also be available, but will be on a first-come, first-serve basis. So don't get left out and make your reservation today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. First pitch. Cracked in the air, deep right field. This one's way back there. It's over the head of the right fielder, Sanchez, and off the wall. He fields the carom and throws to first, holding Bell to a wall ball single. The Nationals' first hit of the night is a screaming line drive off the bullpen fence. And Sandy Alcantara's no-hit bid comes to an end after six and two-thirds brilliant innings. One ball, two strikes. The wind and the pitch to Escobar. Swing the ground ball toward the middle. Roas to his left has it behind the bag at second. The throw on to Diaz at first. And the ball game is over. And the Nationals had a long stretch in between games of being shut out are blank tonight here at home by the Miami Marlins. And welcome to Nats Chat for Tuesday, September 14, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, of the many things that have happened to the Nationals since the franchise came to D.C. prior to the start of the 2005 season, heck, of the many things that have happened with the Nationals this season, one thing that has never happened is the Nats being no hit. We came dangerously close to that changing on Monday night, but thankfully that did not change. The Nationals did get a hit. In fact, they got two hits, but they did get shut out for the first time in months, a shutout loss for the Nationals, a 3-0 loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park in game one of a three-game series and game one of a six-game homestand. That's now 59 and 85 on the season. But Marlins starter Sandy Alcantara, who is a good pitcher, so it's not exactly stunning that he pitched well, but of course, you never quite expect something like this. Eight scoreless innings, seven strikeouts, one hit, no walks. He is a good pitcher. He looked terrific on Monday night. And a Nationals offense, which has been rolling, we've noted this on the podcast, was uh, humbled rather mightily by Alcantara in this game on Monday night. You know, on the one hand, you say like, oh, man, how could they let themselves get into that position? But you know what? I've seen Alcantara face them several times before, and they've had some success against him. He was out of this world in this game. His stuff was insane. Fastballs were averaging 99, topping out at 100. But more impressively than that, his sliders are 93-94, and his changeup was 89 to like 91. I think he only threw about three pitches the entire game that weren't at least 90 miles an hour. 
that is some impressive stuff. And it's not like he just throws everything on a straight line. Everything is moving as well. So as disheartening as it would have been if he had been, uh, you know, if he had thrown the no-hitter and they'd been no-hit for the first time, I think I could say that, like, Alcantara would have earned this one. This was legit. And, you know, I'm sure the Nationals feel better. Everybody feels better that it didn't happen. But this would have been one that you could say, hey, you know what? On this night, this guy was really, really good, and there was nothing the Nats were going to do about it, whether they were no-hit or went finished with two hits. Yeah, I mean, he's a good pitcher. I was thinking about this. You have the Nationals and the Marlins, the two worst teams in the National League East. It's too bad you can't combine the two teams and take their two strengths and put them together because the Nationals can hit, but they can't pitch. The Marlins can pitch, but they can't hit. If you could just add those two things together, you'd have a pretty good baseball team, but that's not the way that things work. So Alcantara takes a no-hit bid deep into the seventh inning, but then comes Josh Bell in yet another sign and yet further confirmation that Josh Bell is hitting like a madman. He, in the bottom of the seventh inning, has a two-out first-pitch single off the right field wall, the rare single off the wall, to end the no-hit bid by Sandy Alcantara. Alcantara, for a while, was flirting with a perfect game. That bid was ended by the returning K-Bert Ruiz, who started for the first time in a few days off getting, remember, hit on the face in uh, that Nationals game at the Pittsburgh Pirates on Saturday night. K-Bert breaking up the Alcantara bid for the perfect game by reaching base via error to begin the bottom of the sixth inning as a Ruiz hard-hit grounder resulted in him reaching first base via a fielding error by the Marlins second baseman, Jazz Chisholm. The 1-0 pitch. Swing a line drive to the second baseman. Chisholm backs up, bobbles it, slips down, cannot make a play. He throws it from his stomach and safe at first is Ruiz. Now, I thought that this made for an interesting predicament for the official score because, you know, to me, when it comes to like what is a hit and what is an error, it feels like arbitrary sometimes. And part of me is thinking they should just eliminate errors. I know that's not going to happen, but I think there's an argument to be made for that. But that was a well-struck ball. It was not an easy play. It was, you know, a makeable play. Do you think that the perfect game no-hit bid entered into the mind of the official score in giving Chisholm an error there and not giving Ruiz a hit? That's always the official scorer's worst nightmare, to have something like that happen. And the call that you make is going to impact history, literally history. I don't know if it did cross his mind. I will say I thought it was the right call in that play. Now, it was not a completely routine play. The ball was hit hard. It skipped up on him. And I think what maybe sealed it was, so at first, the ball skips up on him and it falls to the ground. And then as he's trying to pick it up, he slips on the grass and falls down and has to try to throw it from his knees. If he just picks it right up and throws to first, I think he's got a fairly routine play still. And I think that's maybe what made it an error as opposed to, it's not just that the ball ate him up, but that he then slipped. And you know if he completes the first part of that, even not catching the ball cleanly, I think there was still time to pick it up and make the throw. And the slip is what ultimately prevented that from happening. So I was okay with the call in the moment. Obviously, you're thinking like, oh man, what if this ends up being really important in the end? These official scorers, they take it very seriously. They are employees of Major League Baseball, not of the teams. Now, yes, they are assigned to only one team typically. So the the guys who do this in Washington only do in Washington. Some of them may also split their time with Baltimore as well. But when you hear things like, oh, that was a homer call by the official scorer, it's pretty rare that that's the case. These guys are professionals. They are very astute on the rules of this. They are hired by Major League Baseball. They're scrutinized pretty closely, and they do the best job they can. I thought it was the right call. I could see how it wasn't you know, 100% clear cut, but I did think it was the right call. Yeah, and the homer call would have been to give Ruiz a hit, 
And that was not the case there. Before we get back to the no-hit stuff, what did you think about Ruiz playing? You know, he almost stayed in that game on Saturday night. This is actually pretty interesting, the way this developed. So this was that 10-7 loss at the Pirates. Top of the six of that game, Ruiz gets hit on the right side of his face by a pitch from Pirates reliever Kyle Keller. High target from the catcher Perez and the pitch. Oh, inside hit him in the batting helmet, the side of the face in the jaw area. He was examined for a while. You know, at first you're worried, like, was he knocked unconscious? He thankfully was not. Then you say, well, did he break his jaw? He did not. He was able to move his jaw. And it looked for a little bit like he might stay in the game. Now, he ended up leaving. He had to go through some concussion protocol. And he's back out there catching on Monday night. And in the top of the first inning, he takes a foul ball off his mask. You're like, geez, of all the innings for that to happen, that happens in his first inning back off getting hit in the face. And the mask went flying off. It's not like it just ricocheted. It, it sent the mask flying, and you're like, oh, my God, this kid can't catch a break. I was a little surprised. What I was most surprised at on Saturday was that he never went down. Like, he was on his feet the entire time in shaking it off and talking to Paul Assard, the trainer. But they did all the tests. The concussion tests were clean. X-rays were negative. There were no fractures anywhere. He was had a little bit of a headache and was sore. But two days later, he was fine and was able to play, and good for him. I mean— the life of a catcher is not an easy one, and you take enough of those over the course of your career, it is going to cause some damage. But to his credit, somehow it did not, and he avoided the worst of it. And, you know, these are an important last three weeks for him. They He needs to play. They need to see him. We just haven't seen a lot of him yet, and it's hard to draw a whole lot of conclusions. And the shame of that Saturday night was that he had a really good game. He had his first big hit for them, bases loaded double. Uh, obviously, it was a controversial play at the plate. Did you notice in this game, on a play at the plate, he positioned himself in front of the plate and did the right technique. Now, he didn't get him out. The throw was late, but he picked up on that quick and was able to make the adjustment they wanted him to make. So I thought that was a good sign as well. Yeah, it's tough for catchers with that home plate collision rule. The best explanation I've heard, and it's not apples to apples, but it's almost like the way a first baseman treats first base. Like you never would stand right in front of first base at the end of the first base line. And that's kind of now as a catcher, how you have to look at home plate. But it's tricky. It's not easy for these guys. And uh, yeah, that adjustment was rather noticeable. But he is tough. I mean, we'll see what he ends up being, but he is not a softie for him to be back out there playing as he was. So this phenomenon of the Nationals having not been subjected to being no hit since the franchise came to D.C. Really interesting on a lot of levels. So if you follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Zuckerman, he relayed something from one of the Nationals radio voices, Dave Jagler, that's uh, pretty interesting. The Nats now have played 2,632 regular season games since coming to D.C. without being no hit. 26-32. If you're a good baseball fan, you know what that means. That's the length of the Cal Ripken Jr. Ironman streak, the major league record for consecutive regular season games played. That is remarkable. It's remarkable on a number of levels. A, because it's a long time. B, because the Nationals were so bad initially, so you would think at some point they would have gotten no hit. C, because even since the Nats got good, they have been prone to these offensive funks and these slumps where it's not, you know, unthinkable that the team gets no hit. And then D, we have seen an abundance of no hitters in Major League Baseball for like a decade plus now. In fact, I went back and counted it up. Since the Nats came to D.C., so since the start of the 05 season, there have been 59 regular season no hitters. The truth is, the value of a no-hitter has plummeted in recent years. It's, it doesn't mean what it used to mean. Like, if Alcantara had done this on Monday night, good for him. 
it really would not have been that big of a deal. We just had a no-hitter a few nights ago in baseball. So that streak is fascinating to me that the Nats have avoided being no-hit through all these years. Yeah, and they really, with only one exception, have come close to being no-hit. And that was September 24th, 2013 in St. Louis against Michael Walkup, who took it to the final out of the ninth. And I remember covering that. Now, this was the day after the Nats were eliminated from the pennant race. They were kind of trying to make a late charge in September to catch, uh, I think it was the Pirates and the Reds for the last wild card spot, and just couldn't quite get there in the end. It was it was a down year, a year that was the World Series or bust year of David Johnson, and they just couldn't get there in time. And so they get eliminated one night, and the next night, you could tell they were down. They just didn't have the energy. And Michael Walker, who was fantastic as a rookie for the Cardinals, carved him up that night. And he's one out of way, and I've got my story ready to go saying that it happened. And then Ryan Zerman, of all people, hits a little chopper over the mound. It's fielded by the shortstop, I believe, Pete Cosma. And Zim legs it out and beats it out. And this isn't that young of a Zimmerman. This is 2013. Zimmerman, ground ball. Walker can't make the play. Cosma bare hands. The tag. No! And Zimmerman beats it out. And he beats it out and avoids the no-hitter with an infield single. And then I think the next batter makes an out and the game is over. But... That's really the only close call they've had. This was about as far as anyone else has taken one against them. And it's, I don't know what to read into that other than to say they've had some pretty good lineups over the years. But like you said, no hitters are common. This team had some bad lineups as well in some down years. They faced some very good pitchers over the years. And the franchise, if you go back to the Expos, has not been no hit since 1999. Only the Oakland A's have a longer streak. They go all the way back to 1991 without being no hit. That's 30 years. So, I mean, some of this is flukish, you know, there's no rhyme or reason for it, but what Cleveland's been no hit three times this year. So, I mean, you just never know. So I, I don't know, I guess give them some credit of all the, the bad things that could happen to you as a franchise. This is the one thing they can say has never happened to them. They've never been no hit. Yeah. It's worth thinking about too. We are in the month in which you tend to see no hitters, at least in the past with the previous September call-up rules. I mean, there's a reason that two very prominent Nationals no hitters were thrown in September, right? Jordan Zimmerman against the Marlins, Max Scherzer against the Mets. You get teams with these AAA style lineups. You get teams that have maybe tapped out on the season. And so, you know, you tend to maybe get some flirtations with no hitters, if not actual no hitters. We do not get one though of the Nationals on Monday night. And that's a good thing. I'm glad that the Nats did not get no hit. We did not need to add that to the list of shame for the Nationals this season. There's been enough of that this year in terms of bad things that have happened with this team. The the Nats have earned the right not to get no hit by Sandy Alcantara on Monday night. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's coppersmith, 
with a K. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Floral Rocks kicks the 0-2. Swing and a line drive right center field. A base hit. Leading off the inning for Ryan Zimmerman. Turns around a 94-mile-an-hour fastball on an 0-2 count and lines it in to right center field. Zimmerman had a hit in this game. The Nats only have two hits, but Zim in this game comes through with another pinch hit, a leadoff pinch single in the bottom of the ninth on an 0-2 pitch. I remember when we had the conversation about how Zimmerman's pinch hitting numbers were not good, and that wasn't that long ago. And he's piled up a bunch of good pinch hit plate appearances in recent weeks. Hits, walks, homers. You know, I don't know if it's him becoming more comfortable in the role or whatever, but he's definitely been more productive in that pinch hitting role lately. Yeah, and he's needed to be because he's really not starting many games at all. At this point, as good as Josh Bell has been, both against lefties, in the field, everything. He's starting almost every day at this point. But it it does kind of in the back of your mind, we've been waiting, you know, as we start to get closer to the finish line here, we haven't heard anything from Zim yet about his future plans. And it does make you wonder if in his mind he's thinking, I can still do this. And I think all along he's believed he could still do this. It's just a matter of does he want to go through with it to play for this team given the position that they're going to be in? in 2022. So I don't know the answer. I'm not sure anybody truly knows the answer to that yet. I don't know that he has conveyed it yet to anyone in the organization, but there are still things he's doing well at this stage of his career. I think if on opening day you said, here's what Ryan Zerman's going to do for the year and you showed him the numbers that he's going to end up with now, I think for the most part you'd say, okay, that was worth it. Like he did what he was supposed to do. Number one, he stayed healthy and was on the roster all year, played good defense when he's been out there, delivered enough off the bench, still mashes lefties. I mean, there is still value there. This is, if this is the end for him, he's not going to go out with a whimper. He will go out having, you know, still been a productive player in this, if it is his final season. And I'm not entirely sure yet that it is his final season. He's slugging 476 on the season. Uh, There's no shame in that. The issue has been the on-base. He's got a, a mere 286 on base percentage. Let me ask you this. The decision for him to be back next season, is that entirely his? Or do you think Mike Rizzo has a say in that? I.e., could it end up being that he wants to come back, but Rizzo doesn't want him back? Or do you think if he wants to come back, Rizzo will have Zimmerman back? I think that's a tough thing for the organization to say to him if he really wants to come back. Especially, you know, you're talking about coming back for $1 million, probably again, with incentives. That would be a tough thing to say no. Now, One thing that maybe could delay all this, and again, we're speculating, we really don't know how this is going to play out, 
But one thing in Zimmerman's mind and the team's mind may be to wait this out and not make any declarations here at the end of the season. Because if there is a DH in the National League next year, I think that changes the dynamic a little bit. And it opens the door for a little bit more. I think what we did see this year is that ideally you don't have a backup first baseman who only plays first base. That they're a little bit hamstrung in that regard. Now, if there's a DH as well, that opens the door for a little bit more. The fact that Josh Bell has played a little bit of outfield this year also helps somewhat. But I think, you know, even though they're rebuilding next year, even though it's mostly a young team, you still have to come up with 26 guys. And on a bench, you do like having some experience on the bench. And I don't think it would be the end of the world from the national standpoint if he chose to come back. You could say, yeah, is he really necessary on this team? Is it the right thing for him to be back? But you can't go 100% young. You have to have at least a few veterans, and especially at the price that it would come at. I think, and he knows the story of what's going on here. He's not going to come here and expect to play more than he has this year. So I think if he wanted to come back, they would welcome him back. I don't think they want to get into that kind of messy situation. Yeah, I think the DH thing is huge. I think if there is a DH, there is a pretty clear path to saying, hey, it might make some sense to have him back. If there's not, though, I think it's hard to mount the horse of older guy, only plays first base, can't play every day. So if somebody gets hurt, like if Josh Bell gets hurt, it's not like all of a sudden Ryan Zimmerman can be your everyday first baseman. You know, we have chronicled a ton on this podcast, the lack of positional flexibility, how that has hurt the Nats this season. You want to double down on that for bringing them back, even for just a million dollars. I think that's a tough sell to your baseball people, that that's the right baseball move. But if there's a DH to your point, I think, all right, then it can maybe make some sense. So that's why no more pitchers hitting. Another reason uh, for that to be the case. Well, Sandy Alcantara was very good on Monday night, but you know who else was good? Our guy. The secret weapon, Paolo Espino, he was good. He was good for a third time in four starts. You know, a sneaky, encouraging storyline as the Nationals' regular season winds up here is the reemergence of the secret weapon, Paolo Espino, good for a third time in four starts with what he did in this 3 nothing loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Monday night. One run in six innings, Paolo doing Paolo things. Six strikeouts versus three walks, and one of those walks was intentional, so if you really want to be truthful about it, it's six strikeouts versus two walks. Uh, Gave up six hits, a double, and five singles. You can certainly live with that. Threw strikes. Did what Paolo does. 62 strikes versus 29 balls on 91 pitches. This was the peak Paolo we saw a few months ago. And it's the peak Paolo we've seen lately. Now, he was not very good in his last outing. The 8-5 loss at the Atlanta Braves last Tuesday night. Struggled for the first time in three starts in that game. Five runs in five innings, although he did have seven strikeouts in that game. And if you look at his two outings prior to that outing, two runs in five and a third innings and a 7-6 loss to Philadelphia at Nats Park on September 2nd, and one run in five innings and a 2-1 win at the Mets on August 27th, a game in which he had seven strikeouts versus no walks. He's actually striking out a decent amount of people, and he's pitching pretty well here over his last, you know, four starts. Yeah, it's good for him to finish on a little bit of a high note there, and maybe get the ERA back down a little lower under four. But I'll tell you what, the first inning, I was nervous because I was thinking this could be a really quick night for him. He did not look real sharp. Three straight batters reaching. There were some hard hit balls. He's down one nothing. He got a big double play to get out of it off Lewis Brinson's bat to end the first inning. And he said that he felt like he just wasn't quite in sync with Cabert Ruiz in that first inning. The first inning was a little... Uh, I think I was thinking too much. I was uh, I was throwing too much around the plate. 
from that second inning on, I think uh, Kaber and I, we, we pretty much sink a little quicker. And we, were, we had a, a lot better pace throughout the game after that, after that first inning. His pace was really slow. He was trying to be a little too perfect throwing it over the plate and came back in the second inning. They had a good conversation between innings and picked up the pace, got more in sync with him, what he wanted to do. And he was very good the rest of the way. So much so that, you know, he departs after the sixth at 91 pitches. And I think in a different situation, he could have come back for the seventh. And the only reason he didn't was that his spot in the lineup was up. And at this point, there's still being no hit. Maybe even still been perfect game. Yeah, at least in the bottom of the sixth, Ruiz let off the inning with the air. So I think Davey had no choice but to pull him. But in a different situation, tie game or up a run, I think he might actually get to come back out for the seventh, which is not something we've seen him do. So that was a very good start for him in the end and maybe a little building block for him as he tries to finish out the year strong. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that first inning because it's true. And we've seen this with Nats pitchers throughout this season where what you think the start is going to end up being early on is not what the start ends up being. We've seen that in the opposite fashion with Patrick Corbin more than a few times where he starts off well, but then by the end of the outing, you're like, man, this, this is just another bad outing. For Paolo, he was putting guys on base early in the game and you were kind of like, there's no way this guy's going to last. But as, as, as the game went on, he kind of was able to do it. Got helped out a bit by his defense. Good-looking outfield assist by Juan Soto. You know, that's something about Soto. I know we've noted it, but his defensive improvement this season, he's really bounced back off a subpar defensive year last year and what was, yes, a truncated season. But Juan Soto in this game coming through with a nice outfield assist, throwing out the runner at second base. And Paolo is able to navigate to get to where he allows one run in six innings. You mentioned the ERAs. Got it down to 418, which no is not great, but, you know, We've seen plenty of people with ERAs much worse this season. You know, you've had three different guys well over five this year, and John Lester, Patrick Corbin, and Derek Fetty. Paolo, 32 games this year, including 16 starts, 97 innings, an ERA of 418. I mean, real value, especially for a guy. I mean, we have to always remember this with Paolo Espino, a 10th round pick of the Cleveland Indians in 2006 had barely pitched at the major league level prior to this season. The plan was never for him to pitch at the major league level this season. He gets called up from AAA Rochester because of that initial Steven Strasburg injury. And he's been with the Nationals ever since. And he's either been a member of the rotation or he's been someone who's been used as a long man in the bullpen. I mean, real value he has provided this year. We joke but he's actually been among the more valuable pitchers for the Nats this year. That's an indictment of the pitching staff, yes, but it's also a credit to him. Just imagine if that first start, the emergency start for Strasburg, if it didn't go well. What might that have meant for the rest of the season for him and arguably for his career? Because I think he pitched well enough that they said, oh, let's keep him around a little while longer. Maybe we can find a spot for him in the bullpen. And then he did so well there that when there were openings again in the rotation, they put him back in, and now he hasn't given up the spot since, both by his performance and by, you know, the losses of others along the way. But, you know, guys like that don't get multiple chances. So if you don't take advantage of that first one, kind of like Josh Rogers, if Rogers doesn't pitch well in that first call-up start against the Mets, who knows if he gets a second one? And if Paolo did not do the job in that first emergency start way back in April, he may get sent back down, and who knows, they may not call him back up again along the way. So it... Those little things that in the moment you never could imagine what it would lead to. If I told you on that day that he would make 16 starts and total over 100 innings here shortly and give him an ERA around four, I think we all would have been shocked at that. And good for him that he stuck it out and that he made the most of his opportunity and now looks like a piece not just for this year, but somebody who can help them again next year. 
The Nationals this season have cornered the market on 30-somethings who aren't supposed to be pitching in the majors but do and do a halfway decent job. You know, Paolo Espino, Sean Nolan, Josh Rogers. That says a lot about a lot, but that is an interesting theme, an interesting storyline this National season. Now, they've had multiple people kind of fitting that Paolo Espino narrative. Nats bullpen was pretty good on Monday night with the, you know, one guy had issues, two others did not. That's how it is in almost every game with the Nationals bullpen. It's three or more relievers per game, and it's inevitably like two-thirds of the guys are fine. It's the rest of the third, it's the last third, the remaining third, that ends up having problems. So two runs in three innings ultimately given up by three Nats relievers. Sam Clay, perfect top of the seventh. Austin Voth, a perfect top of the eighth. But Patrick Murphy, who was coming off a bad outing, has another rough outing here. Two runs in the top of the ninth inning. He was not nearly the mess that he was in his previous outing, which came on Friday night. But Murphy in this game on Monday night begins the outing by giving up three consecutive hits. Leadoff single by Lewis Brinson on an 0-2 pitch. First pitch double by Lewin Diaz and a two-run double by Alex Jackson for a 3-0 Marlins lead. Uh, second consecutive outing in which Murphy pitches in the ninth inning. This was a different circumstance than what he encountered on Friday night. Remember, the Nets blowing it in that game, that 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates. First career regular season save chance for Murphy, and he ended up being a real mess. Ultimately gets charged with two runs in a third of an inning. And I suppose this is the Patrick Murphy that the Toronto Blue Jays saw and why they DFA'd him, because he's got the talent and he can look great. But there is an inconsistency. He can struggle with control. He can struggle with effectiveness. He can be wild. And uh, we've seen some of that over these last two outings. Yeah, this was not a great one. The one good thing, I guess, after, you know, last time it, we couldn't throw strikes, this time 14 pitches, 10 strikes. So maybe he was trying to be too fine and wound up lobbing him over the plate and getting hit hard because he gave up some hard hit balls in that inning. It just across the board in the bullpen, I was having this conversation with someone else, Finnegan has been the one semi-consistent member that you'd say, okay, we've seen enough to know that he is definitely a part of this moving forward. The rest of them, they've all had their moments, but they've all had some really inconsistent, bad moments along the way as well. And that is kind of troubling because as you're trying to build a bullpen for the future, how many of those can you say are definitely part of this? I don't know. Beyond Finnegan, I don't know how many can say that. Obviously, they're going to have to have some of them, and it may be a mixing and matching, and they now have a bunch of guys with minor league options, so they can send them up, call them down, all that kind of stuff. But I do think they're going to have to make some moves this winter to fortify it with some more experience. And at the end of this year, I do think that's going to be a disappointment. When you get to the end of the year, you're going to say that they only identified one of these younger arms as a surefire member of the pen next year in Finnegan. Yeah, I don't know, though. That, can you ever call a reliever a surefire anything? Like, I almost feel like that's an oxymoron where it's like, you know, it's like jumbo shrimp. It's like reliable reliever. Like a reliever by definition, I feel like is not reliable with the exception of like a few guys, just because that's why they're relievers. You know, they're second class pitching citizens. And, you know, like, okay, let's say somebody pitched really well. Let, let's say Patrick Murphy was awesome the rest of this year. Tanner Rainey was awesome last year. What did that end up meaning for this year? You just, you can't count on these people. So I don't know, like, I almost throw my hands up with these guys and you just try to pick guys with talent and you hope for the best with these bullpens. There seems to be very little rhyme or reason. And with the exception of a handful of guys, you know, the Mariano Rivera's, the Trevor Hoffman's, the Billy Wagner's, it's like most of these guys are year to year. You know, an interesting bullpen construction philosophy I've heard of, and I think the Rays have done some of this, not shockingly, is sign a bunch of relievers coming off bad seasons. Because the idea will be they're super cheap, but if they're guys who have been good in the past, 
you can maybe fix a few things. And with these guys on the cheap, you can end up having a halfway decent bullpen. And maybe that's the way to go. It's just you find guys who have been good, are coming off down years. You can sign them on the relative cheap, and maybe they can bounce back for you. You know, maybe there's some logic behind that. But otherwise, man, with these bullpens, you just never know. I mean, I always go back to Matt Albers in 2017 being lights out for the Nationals. Anyone who has followed Matt Albers' career is stunned by that, that season that he had in 2017. But that's how these relievers are. You never know what you're going to get from these guys. Yeah, that's all fair points and and you know, well said. And as we've noted before in this podcast, that Mike Rizzo can't win when it comes to this. He can sign veterans to try to fortify the bullpen and it turns into a disaster. He can decide we're just going to go with inexperience and it's a disaster. And then he ends up having to trade away all his prospects to uh, acquire big name guys in July. He can't win either way. So I get it. I would just say, especially with as low as the payroll seems like it's going to be at this point, there just aren't that many who are locked up. I would spend not a ton of money, but I would spend a little bit of money on, you know, one or two year deals. I would not go more than that for just some reliable, I'm sorry to use the word, but guys with track records and hope for the best. And then you take the rest of this group and say, okay, if there are six of them, we're going to hope that three of them turn out all right and have a decent year to go along with Finnegan and maybe a couple of veterans that we add. And then there you have a bullpen. But I just I think they also have to be careful that is part of the reason for the the variance from year to year that when you only have one or two on a staff that are any good, you can't help but run them into the ground, you know. And so the more you have, the less you have to rely on them. Maybe that helps them in the long run. So many of them, I feel like they're good for a while. And then as soon as they get to that point that they've just been used over and over again, they run out of steam. And that's a, that's a tough spot to be in. If only Jeremy Jeffress had worked out. What happened yeah. with Jeremy Jeffress? Did we ever get to the bottom of that mystery? That was very strange in spring training. The Nats sign him, and then he disappears, and he's not pitching in the majors this season. It is one of the great unsolved mysteries of 2021, Al. I've heard some theories, but I don't want to share too much publicly because I never got anything confirmed about that. But yeah, boy, remember when we were talking, some of our first episodes, go back and listen to them, folks. We're talking about boy, this team might have five quality relievers. What a difference. This might be the deepest bullpen they've ever had. Oh, we need to go back and play some of those again and see how how stupid we sounded at the time. Yeah, you know, Tanner Rainey, he could end up being the Nats' closer. Will Harris. Will Harris. All Yeah, just, I mean, it's all going to work out. Will Harris, who, by the way, is under contract for $8 million next year, and we'll be back. Good luck. Good luck with that one. <laughs> Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season 
for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Hey Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. It's hard to describe the emotion of it. It's an awesome achievement, awesome milestone. Uh, not too many people have reached this milestone. Uh, it's a you know awesome thing to accomplish. You know, I love strikeouts, and to me, this is a testament to durability. Uh, to being going out there every single, you know, making my thirty plus starts a year, year in, year out. Um, you know, everybody can have the ability to do this, but. You know, a few have the durability to do this. And so uh, that's why I take, take away from this is that, it's, you know, all the hard work I've, I've put in. Well, you can always email the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Email from Ryan in Arlington. He writes, in light of Max Scherzer's 3,000 strikeout game, including an immaculate inning and near-perfect result, what do you think it would take for Max to enter the Hall of Fame in anything other than a Nationals camp? I'm concerned that an extension of three or more years, which seems inevitable, and Max performing as well as he ever did, will tip the scales to him sporting a blank cap for his dominance for three cities, especially if he wins a championship for LA, acquires another Cy Young or two, or throws a no-hitter. Thank you for the email, Ryan. I've actually wondered that myself. Just like, what would it take for him not to go into the hole in a Nationals cap? I feel like it would take a lot, but he's so good to wear... You could see him having, you know, a third act with another team to where he accomplishes some significant things. What do you think it would take for Max to go in with the blank cap? Oh, boy. I think it's going to take him pitching into his 40s for that to happen. So he just turned 37 recently. Now, remember, seven years with the Nats, which is two more than he spent in Detroit. 189 starts with the Nats, which is 28 more than he had with Detroit. His ERA, way better with the Nats, 2.80. His whip under one with the Nats, obviously two Cy Youngs with them, two no-hitters, 20 strikeouts in a World Series. So, I mean, pretty much all of that, other than it was really only the last two years in Detroit that were Hall of Fame caliber for Scherzer. Prior to that, he was still finding his way. So at this stage, it's really the vast majority of his success is with the Nationals. Now, He's obviously on a great run with the Dodgers right now, and there's no reason to think that won't continue. And if that team were to make a deep October run and he were to win another title with them, that's going to go into that column. But I think he would need, here's what I would say. I would think he'd need to re-sign with the Dodgers and spend at least two, if not three more years with them and pitch at this kind of elite level, probably win not just a title, but awards, uh, maybe even two more titles and just have more of those iconic Scherzer moments where you start to think of him as being a Dodger, as sort of like the big moments of his career, you you picture him in the L.A. cap. So I'm not saying it's impossible, 
But I think he'd have to sustain this another, I'm going to say three years. I don't even know that two would do it because he's only going to spend, you know, two months with the Dodgers this year. So two years and two months versus seven years in Washington, I think that's a tough sell. Now, who knows? If he loves it there, I mean, there's no rule that says this is how it has to work. It's up to the player to do what they want to do. And it's entirely possible at the end that he says, hey, you know what? I feel something for all these organizations. I mean, people were surprised that Greg Maddox didn't put a, a logo on his hat, even though we really associate him with the Braves more than the Cubs or the other teams that he pitched for briefly. But it was important to him to recognize them all, didn't want to shortchange anyone. And so he goes in with the empty cap. Now, at this point, I don't see Max doing that, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. And maybe here's another theory for you. Let's say he re-signs with the Dodgers or goes to the Giants or the Padres or somebody for two years, does really well, decides he's got one year left, and come 2024, the Nationals are actually in a position to win again. Any chance he comes back and finishes here? That would change the narrative a lot. Well, he could do what Maddox did, which is you go back to the Cubs, right? We see guys do that. Ichiro went back to Seattle. You know, you'll see guys do that. So I I don't think that that's that far-fetched. I think what you'd have to worry about is this. If you get any combination of two, so one World Series and one Cy Young, or two World Series titles, or he somehow has two more Cy Youngs with another team, then I think you have to start to worry a little bit, because he might just say at that point, I had significant success with the Tigers, with the Nationals, and now with this third team, I want to go in with the blank cap. I, I think, though, if he doesn't get those things, so like two, one World Series, one Cy Young, two of each one, I think then you're probably okay. Now, with the cap, correct me if I'm wrong on this, doesn't the Hall of Fame determine the cap? The player obviously has some input in that, or is it truly just entirely up to the player which cap he goes in with? My understanding, I think it used to be suggested by the Hall of Fame, and then the player maybe had like the veto rights over it. But I believe now it is kind of just left up to the player to decide that they didn't want to put themselves in the position to do something that was against the player's wishes. And you have seen a few of these blank caps lately, which I don't love because, you know, part of the charm, I've I've been there before, you look at these things and it's to immediately see the guy's face and the cap on and associate him with a particular team that you think of. So I, I don't love the ones that end up blank. You know, I hope he does go in as a national and I, and you know, let's also be honest here. He didn't leave on bad terms with the organization. It was nothing like that. He understood the position that the team was in. He agreed with it. He wanted to make sure he went somewhere that he had a chance to win now. I think that is, as long as he continues to pitch, that's going to be his number one priority. He wants to be somewhere that he can win. So if it were to ever happen for him to come back here, it's only going to happen if he thinks the Nationals have a chance to win again. Maybe that will be the case by 2024. We'll see. But I I think I feel safe in saying that he wouldn't go in with somebody else's cap, you know, I don't think anything's going to happen that would change that. He could win two more titles, three titles with the Dodgers. I don't think that's enough there to negate everything that he did with the Nationals. I think he knows that would be a slap in the Nationals' face. So worst case, empty cap. But I still feel like a lot's going to have to happen for him to not end up with a curly W on his Hall of Fame plaque. Yeah, well, three championships, I don't know. That (laughs) that would be hard to just say, well, whatever. But we'll see. But You know, the fact that he's doing as he's doing, I mean, you know, we have not seen really anyone do that Nolan Ryan thing since Nolan Ryan. Like we've seen guys pitch into their 40s, but pitch really well. It really doesn't happen often, especially now in the in the PED testing era. Clemens, but that's a different story that he could do that, that he, you know, and look, it could all go away in a year. Like pitchers can fall off quickly, but 
that he has a shot to do that, to be the modern-day Nolan Ryan. I mean, he just got to 3,000 strikeouts. Who's to say he doesn't get to 4,000? I mean, you just don't know with this guy. He's a freak of nature. You know, he's, he's been remarkably healthy. He works hard. He's smart. He understands the science of pitching. Like, he's got so much going for him. I, I remember I asked him about it when we had him on the podcast. The idea of pitching into your 40s, he could do that. It's really intriguing with him, what he could end up being. And really going down as one of the all-time great pitchers. So you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter. You can always email the podcast, NatsChat podcast at gmail.com, including if you'd like to send in a voice memo chronicling your tale of October 2019, how you experienced the Nationals winning the World Series. Or if you want to put in a prediction for the Nationals 2022 season, you can do that as well. Again, the email address, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet the pod to at Nats underscore chat. The secret weapon is back. He's pitching well, like he pitched well earlier this season, get yourself a secret weapon t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chatter, courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you with this Nationals prediction for 2022 from John Walker of Alexandria, Virginia. Hey, Al, Mark, and Tim. John Walker, Alexandria, Virginia. Responding to your request for a prediction for 2022 and building on the conversation on this morning's podcast about what a great year Juan is having, how he'll get some uh, MVP votes. My prediction is that Juan Soto becomes the second major leaguer with 200 plus walks in a season next year. Currently, the record is 232 by Barry Bonds in 2004. Bonds has got the second most walks at 198 and the third most at 177. I think Juan gets the 200. In addition to just his great batting eye and the respect he has from the umpires, my thinking is threefold. One, I think he's going to start faster. Uh, Whatever bugs he had in his hitting that led teams maybe to uh, try to pitch to him are going to be gone. He's going to start like a rocket, and teams are going to try to pitch around him from the get-go for that reason next year. Two, uh, I think with the depleted Nats lineup, of course, uh, teams are going to be reluctant from the very start to let Juan Soto beat them. If you look at his walk numbers, in April, May, and June, Juan was averaging about 20 walks a month. Uh, In August and September, August he had 33. September he's averaging about a walk a game, uh, which gets you to 30 to 32 or so on the month. Six months times 33 walks a month gets you to 198, and I think Juan squeezes a couple more out of there to get you to 200. And the third reason I think he'll walk a lot is teams are going to know you can't shift to get him out, so they're going to try to pitch around him. As we know, he's a great hitter to all fields, so he's not somebody you can take on by thinking he's going to hit into the shift, C.E.G. Bryce Harper. I also think uh, Juan is going to shatter Bryce's on-base percentage of 460 from his MVP season in 2015. Uh, I think he's got an outside shot to take out Bryce's uh, OPS of 1.109 from 2015. I certainly hope so. Anyway, that's my prediction for 2022. Gets us something to look forward to, even if the other rebuilding process is all still underway. Keep up the great work. Continue to love, love, love the podcast every morning. Here's the wind of the pitch. Swinging a long drive right center field. Way back goes this one. Going, going, and long, long gone. About 10 rows deep into the seats over the big wall in right center field. 
Juan Soto with homer number 25 gives the Nationals the lead back 3-2. And doesn't that feel oh so good after taking a fastball in the ribs in the ninth inning last night? Juan Soto put that one into orbit to put the Nationals back in front. And he enjoyed circling the bases, I assure you. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.